What you missed on weekend mornings with Jason Dacey. Only on Money FM 89.3. Let's talk international news and look ahead to the week around the world with a regular contributor here on Money FM, Nicholas Fung, the managing director at Black Dot. And, of course, a former Straits Times correspondent. Nick, good to see you back again. Good morning. Great week ahead. A really important one for U.S.-China trade with U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin heading to China this week for crucial trade talks to try and clinch a deal to avert a march to increase in U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. Well, I think it's been an issue that the whole world has been looking at this uh, trade war and the impact that it's been having on global growth and the global economy. Uh, And now going for a third round of negotiations, I think uh, we're really hoping to see some significant progress. Uh, But at the same time, I think uh, both sides and, and most observers would say that there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I think uh, Mnuchin himself has said that you know we're we're uh, a lot, there's still a lot of work to do. I think those were his exact, exact words last week. Um, and obviously, the key sticking points remain. Uh, uh, the the Trump negotiators want Beijing to enforce American uh, intellectual property rights, to stop cyber hacking of trade secrets, curb industrial subsidies and policies um, that coerce U.S. companies to turn technology over to Chinese competitors. They want that gone. Uh, and those are things that aren't necessarily going to be um, uh, stuff that the Chinese would give up, would give up straight away. And, and crucially, I think people are saying, even if they do agree to something, how do we enforce this? How do we monitor this? So it's not necessarily a solution that we're just going to turn on a dime that we'll see a solution uh, straight away, uh, even after this next round of talks. Uh, and I think that um, Trump definitely needs some progress um, to help him on, on the political front. And I think that he has suggested he would be willing to accept a handshake deal that could extend the negotiations beyond the self-imposed deadline at the end of the month. Uh, but at the same time, the White House is insisting that March 1st is the hard deadline. So I think there's still a lot of uh, things up in the air right now. And it's hard to say either way whether we're going to see definitive solution or not. Well, the markets will be watching very closely. Of course, everything hinges on this. But uh, the beginning of March is, is very, very soon. Uh, how practical is it to expect miracles before then? Uh, I think it's 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 going to be tough. And President Trump even tweeted last week when he said, no final deal will be made until my friend, President Xi, and I meet in the near future to discuss and agree on some of the more difficult points. So knowing uh, President Trump's uh, uh, preference for face-to-face deal-making, as it were, um, potentially we have to hold our breath even longer until both he and President Xi end up meeting face-to-face before maybe we'll see a, a, a firm solution on that, I think an interesting point to note is that uh, David Malpass is attending the talks uh, alongside uh, Secretary Mnuchin and uh, Robert Light- uh, Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade mm. Rep. Um, he's, of course, the nominee by uh, of President Trump's f- to take over the presidency of the World Bank. Yeah, uh, he's a China hawk. So he coming along, I'm not sure whether that's going to be a signal to China that you know we're taking this. The U.S. is taking this pretty seriously, uh, and uh, he's he's made his views very clear, uh, uh, known to be very clear uh, on on how he sees the World Bank's lending to to China and something that he doesn't think necessarily makes sense, given that China then lends you know to a lot of other countries around the world. So um, with him being there, being part of the party, I think that's going to be a signal to China that it's not going to be an easy negotiation by by any means. Well, let's stay in Asia for a story that's really intrigued us within ASEAN about the party-nominated 
a Thai princess to run for prime minister, now saying it will comply with the king's wishes after he opposed the move. And of course, uh, Thai Raksachat is allied to former prime minister Taksin Shinawa. This has been a really intriguing development uh, over the last few days, uh, you know, with a princess wanting to get involved in high-level politics in Thailand. I think it might have been the shortest nomination period ever. <laughs> in, in the space of a few hours, the yeah. turnaround was very swift. Uh, I think it goes to show, uh, you know, how, as we all know, uh, important and, and valued the king's opinion uh, is. Uh, the monarchy, of course, being a central element of Thai life. Uh, and I think that uh, when, when the news first broke uh, of uh, Thai, the Thai princess being the sole candidate for the, uh, the, the party, of course, aligned to uh, uh, Thaksin, I think most people felt that it was A, a bit of uh, a political play uh, by the, the Thaksin group. Obviously, having her there and having her as part of the monarchy um, would be a, a huge threat to, to the incumbent uh, prime minister uh, who has already indicated that he would run as well. Or rather, he, he indicated mm, after she, yeah. she, uh, she, her nomination was announced. I, and I think most of observers felt that it put a huge amount of pressure um, on, on, the, uh, on the incumbent prime minister because of how the monarchy is, is viewed mm. you know, uh, in, in Thailand. That being said, the, the long-standing position has been that the monarchy should be apolitical, should be above partisan politics. Uh, and I think that the, the Thai king uh, very swiftly made his views known. And, and I'm glad to see that uh, that particular institution of, of Thai culture and Thai life is, is preserved. I think um, it, it's just not right you know, if you have a constitutional monarchy to have uh, somebody from the royal family then being involved in, in in the politics, which, as we know in Thailand, can be get pretty down and dirty if uh, if you look at past elections. A lot of Singaporeans always uh, traveling to Thailand and are wondering about you know safety and of course the military is so much uh, still very prominent there. What, what's your observation about the way Thailand is politically at the moment and how stable it is? Well, I think we are all, uh, you know, looking forward to the the elections coming up soon with uh, with bated breath. Uh, but for most of the news that I hear coming out of Thailand and from friends who have been there, I think the the biggest priority now is less uh, any any fears of security or instability, but it's more the pollution issue. Mm, I yes. think the, uh, the the high levels of pollution and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any rain on the horizon either. Uh, I think most of my friends who go for for holidays in Thailand and Bangkok in particular are, are more concerned about that uh, rather than the build-up to the election. But we'll see. It's, it's coming out really soon. With the uh, Nicholas Fung, the Managing Director of Black Dot and our International News Week in Review and looking ahead to the week in US politics. Of course, uh, last week we saw the women in white at the State of the Union address from Donald Trump. It eventually did happen. It was delayed a bit. And this was a big statement, wasn't it, about all these women, you know, of course, a bigger representation now in US politics wearing white as a and maybe you could t- talk about how that might impact uh, the political scene in the U.S. going forward with a lot of uh, female voices now. Well, I think uh, it's important to note that this wasn't really the first time. I think in 2017 in the State of the Union, they, the, the, the women members were wearing white as well, showing solidarity for mm-hmm. a different cause. But in this case, it was to mark the 100 years of uh, suffrage uh, and to, to recognize the suffragettes uh, and also to show uh, a very strong, powerful uh, visual image of the diversity that's now in Congress with 89 uh, women in white. Um, some members of the Trump family were also wearing white, uh, while some others were wearing black. So there was some, a little bit of uh, speculation about what that actually meant. Um, but it was really to mark the diversity of the, the women members that we see now in, in Congress in the US. Um, young 
We have uh, diverse, multiracial, uh, and people from many, many different backgrounds. Um, and I think it was a very powerful symbol because just visually, if you were used to, to, to watching the camera pan of the audience, you'll see a lot of uh, slightly elderly gentlemen in very nice suits, you know, uh, applauding and looking serious. And this time around, you saw a, a lot of young, different, diverse faces and dressed in white. So it's, it's visually very stunning. And I, and I think that most of the um, media attention uh, it, it, probably to President Trump's uh, dismay, shifted away from him and started making uh, <laughs> uh, more of a focus on, on, on this, this statement, as it were. Uh, as we know, House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi also wearing also white, in white, yes. white pantsuit sitting directly behind President Trump. Uh, and there was so much more commentary, I realized this time, on the expressions, on the reactions of these ladies in white to what President Trump was saying. You know, of course, we know as uh, Speaker uh, Pelosi's, um, you know, sort of her, her odd clapping. I've been heard it described as golf clapping <laughs> or sort of, you know, mock sarcastic yes, yes, clapping, if, yeah, you, if clapping yeah. could be sarcastic. Um, and that, that really starts to dominate the narrative as opposed to what, you you know, the, the rhetoric and, and the spiel that uh, President Trump puts out. And I can't imagine that he'll be too happy about that. Also, with a potential connection to the White House, the world's richest man, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, accusing the owner of a U.S. gossip magazine of trying to blackmail him over private pictures. We're talking, of course, about the National Enquirer and the parent company, American Media Inc. And, of course, he preempted this by releasing uh, these text messages with his alleged mistress and and uh, but this this has got real salacious um, elements in it hasn't it oh definitely and it's it's interesting to i was just when i was reading the news i was thinking it's, it's just amazing how everything seems to link back to american politics mm. and to president trump in, yeah. in one way or the other and i think one of the contentious issues here was whether or not uh, ami the publisher of the Enquirer uh, had been in violation of a, of a non-publication clause that was related to stuff that it put out in the 2016 president, presidential elections in the U.S. So it all seems to come back to to politics and elections. Uh, but I think that it's a slightly complicated story. So uh, Jeff Bezos was was sort of threatened um, to 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 uh, he had launched his own investigation once uh, the Enquirer had started to splash news. Of a, of a scandal involving him, and his his investigation investigators and the investigation that they they carried out seem to indicate that the uh, AMI might be in violation of an earlier uh, you know uh, ruling or court decision. So that apparently was what the AMI uh, guys were trying to pressure Bezos to to take down or to not pursue. I think mm. they, they were they were very upset with where the dire- direction of the investigation was going. Um, but to me, as, as a media watcher and as, as an observer of the industry, uh, we are always trying to figure out how can you, you know, uh, fight the news cycle, fight the guys who want to break the news, whether it's the Enquirer or social media. Uh, and Jeff Bezos seems to have taken the bull by the horns and says, you know, right, um, the dirt's all out there anyway. I'm in the process of divorcing my wife of 25 years, but, you know, I'm going to, to out you guys and I'm going to shame you for the stuff that you normally would have done, which is threatening to publish photos. Mm, and mm. Apparently, they're nude selfies and, yep. and all that sort of stuff. So it's a gutsy move. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see how this actually plays out and whether the guys on, on the newsmaker side are actually able to regain the initiative from the media guys who usually set the agenda. 
And of course, there's that connection too between um, you know David Pecker, the head of uh, American Media Inc., and Donald Trump. And with that, um, you mentioned that uh, 2016 presidential campaign and the alleged uh, catch and kill story with the alleged mistress of Donald Trump. So let, let's move on to a more light-hearted story. The Duke of Edinburgh has voluntarily given up his driving license at the age of 97 after a couple of uh, incidents, we might say. Of course, he is the, the husband of the Queen Elizabeth, uh, 97 years old. I think he's retiring. He's going to put his driving cap down and just maybe get driven around now. Well, I think he, he's had to put that out there because obviously the police investigation is still going on. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we were discussing earlier, Prince Philip is, is quite a character. I think both of us kind of like him. Mm. You know, he's a bit of a rebel. Yep. He doesn't like protocol. He doesn't like a lot of the, the trappings that come with being under the royal spotlight. Just watch the crown, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, he's, uh, he, he is certainly a character, but he's not u- unique or not alone in wanting to have this freedom to drive himself. The Queen quite famously likes to drive herself around. Uh, Prince Philip, besides this 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 uh, recent uh, spate of incidents uh, of mishaps while he was driving, uh, I think he quite famously drove Barack Obama, Michelle Obama and the Queen from the helipad when they arrived to, when they came to visit the, the UK. Uh, and there's this awesome photo of him driving them around. And I think the Obamas were quite were a little bit shocked about that. Um, Can you imagine they had a breath stop, a random breath stop, and they, those four would, had to do breath tests? <laughs> <laughs> that, I think they might make a might exception. Make a exception in that particular case. But we should remember that Prince William also drove his uh, his first child, uh, George, and, and the wife f- back from the hospital himself. Correct. And yep. the position that, that, that a lot of the royals uh, take when they're asked, why why do you want to do something like this? And they say, look, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're people. You know, I'm a dad, I'm a, I'm a father, and this is my new family. I, I just thought it'd be nice, you know, to, to drive my family home. Uh, some observers were saying that the protocol and the restrictions on the royals are is so is so tight most of the time that just the the simple freedom of being to start an engine yourself and decide where you want to go <laughs> is something that they don't want to give up. So, but at ninety seven, it's tricky because uh, obviously now you can be ninety four and and still be the prime minister of a country. Mm-hmm. And some people might argue that ninety seven, you should be allowed to drive short distances yourself. But with the with the recent accidents, I guess he didn't have a choice. You know, to to have to voluntarily say okay. I'll, I'll, I'll use the driver now. Gentlemen, start your engines, but be careful of the speed cameras. Nicholas Fung for the moment. Thank you so much. We'll have more from him a bit later on here on Weekend Mornings, Money FM.